Hi, Spring fans. Welcome to a beautiful podcast. I'm your host, Spring Developer Advocate Josh Long, and this show is all about the real heroes behind Spring and its ecosystem. Hi, Spring fans. Welcome to another installment of a beautiful podcast. How are you this fine, fine, fine 18th of May, 2023? I am resplendent. I'm ex- exuberantly, effusively overjoyed. It is the release date of Spring Boot 3.1. And I am in beautiful, beautiful, beautiful Barcelona, Spain, uh, where I've been attending the uh, one, the only, the amazing Spring IO conference. Uh, not to be missed event, especially if you're anywhere in Europe or thereabouts. Uh, you know, the EMEA region really it's super accessible to everybody, and you can't beat the weather. It is springtime here in Spain, and as as expected, um, you know, sun is out, uh, skies are blue, trees are green. It's just. It's just paradise. It's just such a beautiful place and a beautiful time. Such a wonderful community. This event has gotten bigger and bigger, uh, and uh, it certainly seems to have rebounded. Um, you know, if not all the way, then certainly most of the way. Maybe, maybe even more than uh, all the way from uh, its pre-pandemic uh, levels. It's just an amazing show. And today, my friends, the eighteenth of May again, big day because we've released or we're going to be releasing, or sometime soon, based on when you listen to this, uh, we'll have released uh, Spring Boot 3.1, okay? Uh, huge, huge. There's uh, just so much new stuff in there. And um, I actually just did a video over on the Spring, you know, on my Spring Dip series, um, looking at all these new features. So there's a test container and Docker Compose support. Uh, there's um, improved... Uh, uh, GraalVM native image in- integrations, even better, which is already uh, amazing. There's new support for trust material, so you can define, um, you know, certificates, keys, that kind of things, uh, and point in something called an SSL bundle, and then point users, uh, point no, sorry, point libraries like uh, your web clients and your uh, your your uh, databases and your web services, your embedded web servers, you can all just, they can all reference now the same SSL bundle rather than having to redefine all the stuff in a duplicated fashion in inconsistent ways across all the different integrations that Spring Boot provides. So that's a really nice quality of life experience improvement. Um, And there's also auto configuration for the authorization server, the Spring authorization server, which is a fully compliant OAuth to uh, uh, IDP that you can stand up with just a few properties, completing the Trinity of things that people might have uh, might have become accustomed to uh, in days of yore um, in the old Spring Security uh, OAuth projects, they had support for uh, OAuth clients, OAuth resources, uh, resource servers, and uh, and uh, an OAuth authorization server. Now we have all that stuff rebuilt on top of a brand new code base in Spring Security itself, right? So it's a it's not a separate project. Well. The Spring authorization server might actually be, but the other two things aren't. And it's just really a wonderful time. All this stuff is like really, really up to date, latest specs, just a really good story. And now you can use Spring Boot 3.1 to stand all that up uh, with just a few properties, an area, a few properties, just a, you know, really, really powerful stuff. So uh, my friends, I, I can't wait for you to t- test all this stuff out. And actually the groundwork, the, the work that we've done in Spring Boot 3.1 uh, one of the, you know, to support that Docker Compose and test containers integration, one of the things that we had to do was we had to introduce a new bit of indirection called the connection details. A connection details is a new interface, uh, and we use that to then um, provide the actual uh, connection itself 
for various bits of integration. Like, so you need a database, for example, a data source in your spring code. It used to be that we would, in the auto configuration, we'd source the properties from your various property files and environment variables and whatever, and use that to new up or instantiate a you know connection pool pointing to pointing to the right host and port and password and uh, and uh, you know giving the right database driver name and all that stuff. But there's a lot of situations in which it makes no sense to have a username and password. For example, um, when you're using Docker Compose, you're you're going to talk to um, the Docker Compose API. There's no reason that you have to provide a username and password for Docker Compose. Why not just ask Docker Compose in process uh, for the credentials? Likewise, if we're using test containers, we have an object there that can give us the credentials that we need to connect to that thing, the container, the Postgres QL container or, or the like, already have that information available. Why not just query that at runtime? And so that's what's supported out of the box now in 3.1. Going further, you can easily imagine a scenario where, for example, um, we support passwordless connectivity, right? For example, in uh, Microsoft Azure, right? Uh, th that kind of thing. Or you can imagine uh, having um, uh, connection details in implementations that source their, uh, their, their usernames and passwords and so on from, for example, HashiCorp Vault. So you don't have to have a, a or, or better yet, and, you know, imagine you're deploying to Kubernetes. Why would you create a config map and a config, you know, secrets and all that stuff and then create environment variables out of that and then bind that to the application if you could just tell the application, hey, delegate to this secret config map that we've already got in, in the process, in the API server. Um, so it's just a really, really powerful new bit of indirection, and it thinks I think it's going to make things really nice. So you're going to see it in action for the test containers and Docker Compose support, but in theory, it could do a lot more as well. My friends, we have a very interesting time today. Today, we're going to be talking to Josh Burns about their use of Kotlin um, uh, in a large application. I hope you get something out of this discussion. It was a lot of fun. It's actually about a month old, um, but don't worry. Today at Spring I.O., I've been recording podcasts aplenty, uh, interviews aplenty, uh, over on my YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash at coffee software. And you can, you can join me there to see the live streams in, in pixel perfect uh, precision color. But if you want to listen, don't worry as well. I've got a bunch of episodes that are all from Spring.io on the latest and greatest uh, that'll, that are already in the hopper waiting for you for the next uh, several weeks, maybe a few months even. So without any further ado, my friends, let's dive right into today's episode. It's a good one. I hope you get something out of it. Uh, and again, check out Spring Boot 3.1, start.spring.io. You know where to go. I just did a video. I'll put that in the, in the show notes as well. All right. We are live. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning to everybody and anywhere. Uh, how are you? Hi, Josh. I'm good. Hey, buddy. Good. Yeah, John, I'm so glad you could be here today. Uh, this is actually a bit of a later stream. I, I I appreciate that you're joining me. It occurs to me it's Friday afternoon. You're two hours ahead between 3.30 in the afternoon for you. You could have just yes. gone home. Yes. No, you decided I'm going to like, well, I mean, you might already have. I'm home, but <laughs> I'm going <it> out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Like, like the mafia, there's just when you think you're out, you know, they pull you back in. So uh, yeah, I'm I'm really grateful for that, and uh, thanks for joining me. And then to all of I'm you who are joining as well, uh, cheers, yeah. To all of you who are joining as well, I appreciate that you're joining us. A good many people that watch the show uh, are in, um, I mean, statistically, given where I live in the world, in California, in the West Coast of the United States, uh, a good many people are east of me. 
and indeed most people. So uh, most people that watch tend to watch uh, later in the day. So um, thanks to those of you who are joining. Uh, I appreciate it. Today, John, can you tell us about yourself? I, you know, who are you? Uh, what do you do? Sure. I, um, a I'm a staff engineer at Grubhub on the platform engineering team. And I've been there about uh, seven years now. Uh, and I've had a lot of different roles at Grubhub throughout the years, but the past few years I've been on the platform engineering team. Um, and uh, I'm, we're going to talk a lot about that, I'm sure. Um, and then uh, some of the other things that I do, though, uh, I'm one of the maintainers on the KTLint Gradle uh, project, which is the most popular Gradle plugin for uh, linting Kotlin code. And uh, I also organize the Chicago Kotlin user group. Uh, so wow. kind of a few different things going on. So you're really just slacker. Is that what you're saying? Like. <laughs> I also have two kids. <laughs> okay, yeah, wow, that's incredible. I mean, uh, all of those things, any of those, any of those things are uh, interesting, and I suppose we could uh, uh, spend uh, the whole hour, hour and a half, whatever, talking about any one of them. But we'll just try and cover them in in uh, in turn. Uh, hello, Pitam. Hello, welcome uh, to the show. We've got people still chiming in. It's getting on in the day in some of these places. What time is it in uh, in India? I mean, it's, gosh, it's got to be early morning, right? Um, so yeah, I appreciate everybody joining. Um, yeah, so okay, you're a you work on platform engineering. Yes. But I told the nice people that you're going to come talk to us about, uh, um, you know, spring and Kotlin and all that. So what gives? What's the difference there? What am I missing? So yeah, in the industry, platform engineering is kind of this field I think that's taken off a lot the past couple of years, um, and we've had a platform engineering team for. Um, well, at least like six years, we've, I think we've been calling it the platform engineering team. But the scope of our platform engineering team is a little bit more broad than I think what a lot of the other companies in the industry doing this kind of team uh, encompasses. So we have actually have four platform engineering teams. We have um, an infrastructure platform engineering team, which is kind of like your traditional platform engineering team. Okay. Um, then we have a front-end platform engineering team, a service platform engineering team, that's me, and we have a a data platform engineering team. A service platform engineering team is not just me. I'm on that team. Um, right. We have, there's a, there's a handful of us on that team. Right. So I'm on the service platform engineering side, and uh, we've been a Java shop uh, for a long time. Um, and um, so, that, so we have a, a strong commitment to the Java ecosystem, and our microservices platform is implemented in that. So. That is part of our platform. We, we, we right. consider that part of our platform. And, and I can go into the history of how our platform has evolved over time, if you want. Right. Okay. So I missed, I appreciate the uh, the breakdown. We'll get into it. Uh, I want, The reason I care about that is because you're a platform engineering senior staff at Grubhub. What is Grubhub? Okay. So Grubhub, yes. Grubhub is a, a food ordering platform. Um, so it, it's not just delivery. Um, we, uh, we actually started not doing delivery at all. That was something that we added later. Um, so it's really just all-encompassing food uh, ordering. Um, so whether you are picking it up yourself, whether you're getting it delivered by one of our delivery drivers, or whether the restaurant is delivering it to you. Um, you know, in, in addition, we have other verticals as well. For example, we have uh, stuff going on on college campuses, uh, sports stadiums, things yeah. like that. So it's a food ordering platform. Um, right. And we... Um, and uh, we're, we operate in the U.S., um, and we are part of a kind of a, a larger group of corporations that operates worldwide. 
Wow. Okay, that's cool. So I I certainly know of it here. In the, I live in the states, and you know it's it's very 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 popular here, right? It's it, how long has it been around? It's been for like one of the OGs to me. I think technically 2004 or 2005. It's it's been around. Yeah, it was the the first real big one. Um, and um, back before like managed delivery, what we call managed delivery, like delivery was very popular. Um, and then when with the rise of like DoorDash and Uber Eats and those uh, making the delivery aspect of food ordering more of a a, a you know a market, uh, we went right. into that as well. Aha. Okay, I didn't realize that. Okay, so you were like a just bring your restaurant to the internet thing yes, before you yes. were a, a, another way to get uh, food delivered. So, right. oh, that's cool. Wow. And getting, I mean, even getting food delivered is, I'm sure if people asked uh, uh, some of your distinguished competition, they would say it's really hard, right? Even that just by itself is a, is a whole thing. So for you to be able to do that well and maintain this entire other side of the business is phenomenal. You know, must uh, mm-hmm. you must need force multipliers that a lot of people just <laughs> don't necessarily think about, right? Um, mm, so, yeah. Okay. And don't get me wrong, the delivery part is the hardest part. <laughs> that is very hard. I, that's cool. Um, okay, so talk to me. I mean, what is so you're, you're you're when you when you talk about these uh, uh, services, you talk about service uh, platform engineering. You talk about data, and you talked about um, what did you call it? Uh, platform. We have uh, uh, infrastructure and front end. Infrastructure, yeah. So infrastructure, service, mm-hmm. and data. You know, um, and uh, and so when I think of platform engineering, I think of uh, like the Netflix model, right? Netflix said they each team has full control over their own thing. Uh, the only only um, Exception to that is, for example, who's going to maintain the debt, the Cassandra's stack, you know, or, or the cloud infrastructure. But everything else is basically use whatever stack, anything above the the VM. Basically, you can do as you need. Um, yeah, so that's that's a similar uh, um, a similar uh, posture that we that we have. Uh, we in the past were a little bit more opinionated, um, okay. and then over time we've we've loosened the opinions a little bit more. Um, so we have a, a language agnostic platform. We use a like an Envoy service mesh for all these services to, to communicate with each other. So really, we don't care what stack your service is running on, um, but we follow kind of the um, <laughs> right at the platform level. But we follow kind of the uh, golden path style um, like model where we say, sure, you can do whatever you want technically as long as it meets these certain criteria. But we do have something out of the box that is fully featured with all of these features that you can use and get running and productive right away. So you really have to have a strong case why you need something else. Um, part of the, the logic behind that was as we grew and started to acquire companies with other stacks, we wanted to be able to incorporate them into our stack uh, without having to rewrite everything. So that's really the main driver for that, like being able to put like something from Python or Ruby or whatever else on our stack or on our platform. It's really so don't have to write, rewrite a whole bunch of stuff that we acquired. Um, so all of our first party stuff that we are writing is pretty much all Java uh, microservices. And we have about 160 uh, microservices. Okay, wow. Uh, okay, so that's a great point. You, you, you have these other uh, bits of infrastructure that you need to integrate. So those 
people, those uh, folks working on, on that stuff, they get the, the wiki page with the 500 easy steps to, to production. <laughs> Is that the idea that like they, they can do, they can do whatever they need to as long as they have these, their thing matches a certain shape. Yes, yes, that's the idea. And, and that's still evolving. I mean, I'm not going to say we have that perfectly down either. Right. Um, but but that's the direction we're going, and, and that's kind of like the, the posture we take as a, as a platform engineering team. And is the, when you talk about platform, like technically infrastructure, are, are we, are you, what is, can you talk about, is that like Kubernetes? Is that, oh, you said Envoy, so mm -hmm. is it yep. Envoy? We are, we are, uh, so traditionally, we were all uh, AWS Cloud. And I'm um, sorry, I, I saw a comment that maybe you can't hear me so well, so I'll lean into the mic a little more. You can hear me, there's just a bit of a crackle and it's a- uh, Maybe I'm moving around too much. I don't know, okay. Okay, okay. So, so, so sorry about that. Yeah, so AWS Cloud, um, so going back in the-, in the in... Maybe go back a little bit, I don't know. Back a little, okay, is that better? Okay. Yeah. Okay, so yes. Um, to, Whatever. If, if I could take a step back uh, a little bit and talk about the history, I think that uh, might help explain it. Um, in about 2014, Grubhub was the result of the merger of two uh, companies, Grubhub and Seamless. So if you've, if you've been to New York or if you were in the New York in the 2010s, you probably have heard of Seamless. If not, then you probably haven't heard of it. But these were two very similar companies. Grubhub uh, was based in Chicago, Seamless in New York. Similar size, doing pretty much the same thing. They just merged. Okay. Oh wow. Okay. And so, but each one was running on basically like the original monolith architecture. And uh, so, instead of saying uh, let's convert all of the seamless like business over to Grubhub or all the Grubhub business over to seamless, uh, the decision was made back then. This is before my time, so I can't take credit for any of this. But let's build a microservices platform and, and then start replacing bits of the monoliths one at a time with microservices. Nice. And then just so, so it would, was the idea that both companies would then use the new microservice that replaced some bit of functionality in the old businesses? Yes. Yeah. And, and then it was just one stack, one microservices platform uh, to, to handle everything. So you did integration, but also renovation, right? Like you, you decided, yes. well, you're going to have to do the work. You might as well just start, you know stand up a new one did you wow so what was it like to move were they monoliths before uh, at each yeah there were monoliths before so we kind of like shaved off vertical slices um Whoa. you know off of those monoliths and replaced them with microservices it was a years-long process it took a long time to finally decommission those old monoliths completely it's one of those things where the, the last 10 percent of functionality took 90 percent of the time naturally but we got it done we got it done and so um but part of that process was, well, we want to go from running on our own racks to running in the public cloud. So AWS was chosen for that. Um, but all the deployments and everything were basically, it's a bunch of custom Python scripts that we wrote right back then. Because uh, Kubernetes, I mean, in 2014, you know, Kubernetes was not really uh, a thing no. uh, so much. Um, people were barely even doing Docker back then. And we did choose to use Docker. Uh, we were running Docker in production before most people were even messing around with Docker. Um, so we did choose Docker, but we chose uh, EC2, uh, Amazon EC2. Uh, but now the time has passed. We are using Kubernetes. Um, we're not fully rolled out on Kubernetes yet, but we are migrating towards towards that, replacing our orchestration with Kubernetes. Database-wise, we're running on Apache Cassandra for like 
most of our databases. We have exceptions to that. And we're using Elasticsearch in some places for search. Nice. Um, and then in Java for the actual services themselves. Nice. Okay. So and so these uh, existing uh, since the the great integration uh, started in 2010, and since it completed more recently, uh, you've onboarded new new companies. Is that the idea? new systems that are written in these other languages? Did that yes. Um, so it's been a combination. We, I mean, the the food delivery uh, space uh, throughout the years has been, you know, there's been a ton of little tiny regional players, and then the the bigger companies like us and our, our main competition, we tend to acquire those up to get like a better position in each city. Um, so a lot a lot of the smaller ones, when we acquire them, we just kind of you know migrate their data into our stack and then that's it, right? Uh, but but some of the acquisitions have been like different kinds of verticals that we don't do. Like um, the campus, like I said, we have like college campus food ordering stuff. Um, that was something that like we just didn't have support for anything like that in our stack. So it didn't make sense to try to move them into our stack. It made sense to integrate their stack to our stack. So that's where so that cool. came from. That is cool. So you've got, you, you as an organization, you've become very, uh, agile, agile enough to accommodate literally whole new systems just appearing at your doorstep. <laughs> uh, yes, on a regular basis, you know, like uh, wow, that's cool. That is super cool. Um, okay, so you talked about uh, AWS. That's obviously a very common, very you know, sensible default, uh, especially twenty fourteen, right? Um, mm -hmm. And and you were using, uh, and, and then at some point you moved to containers on AWS, and now you're moving to Kubernetes. Uh, you know, containers and Kubernetes, which is, I repeat myself. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, so good. So you, it sounds like you're, you know, the platform itself, the infrastructure uh, is, you know, pretty stock standard stuff, right? Anything, anything like mainframey, any old COBOL? No. We do still support uh, faxes uh, for the restaurants. Like we'll send you your order on a fax. <laughs> but the restaurants want it. <laughs> so. It's, oh, oh, I know. I, I, this is what always blows my mind is uh, just uh, just how much, uh, you know, how many systems depend upon these. Some, we think these things are gone, but you go into the back of a lot of restaurants, they're going to have a fax machine there, you know, it just yeah. is the way. Yeah. You know? And you would think, well, well, surely everybody has a phone. That's not even true anymore. It's still not true. Mm -hmm. yeah. Not everybody has a phone, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, um, good stuff. But, that, but then that, that brings us to like, uh, well, why why are we here to talk about Spring? Why am I here to talk about Spring Boot, right? <laughs> um, yeah. We should well, get there. So, yeah, go ahead. Um, well, I was gonna say, hold on a second. What is the what's the difference between the data platform engineering and the um, so what, what kind of data is that? Are we talking about Cassandra, Hadoop, or what? Okay, yeah. So the. Um, the, the data platform engineering team is more like what a lot of people would call like the data lake. This is uh, not production data. This is um, aggre aggregating all of our data from our production systems into something that's uh, able to be queried for um, whether it's training machine learning models or just generating reports for the business or things like that. Um, so when we talk about Cassandra, like our production databases, that's uh, that kind of falls under the infrastructure platform team. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, so now, and so you've got, uh, when you talk about uh, data, does each microservice have its own database and they just, they're administered, maintained by this team, or is it that there's just one big thing and everybody uses that and connects to it or whatever? 
Uh, so we have um, uh, we, we have uh, many Cassandra clusters, um, but it is not one to one. Every service has its own Cassandra cluster. Um, basically, each each service has its own key space within the cluster. Um, but uh, and then we have dozens of clusters, um, sure. so it's not yeah. So we can uh, if we have like a noisy neighbor, we can't. We have the flexibility to say this is going to go into a new cluster or its own cluster or something like that. Um, but uh, so it's not just like one big Cassandra cluster. Um, right. But there, but there, but there are multiple services just because it would be if we had 160 different Cassandra clusters, the maintenance of that would would be kind of overwhelming. Yeah, yeah of course, and and plus. Uh, Cassandra is great because it's a, it can be it can be a durable, safe, uh, reliable uh, store of record, but it can also be highly optimized. It can be denormalized, so it's it's the view on the data, you know, for a lot of different services that need a a fast read model, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, well, but we don't we don't have uh, we do have separation where every service has its own key space, so we don't have multiple services accessing like the same. Uh, you know, tables uh, as you know, they don't share any data. There, there is a strict separation there. Um, but Cassandra is really important um, because uh, part of our platform that we built is uh, hot, hot multi data center uh, availability, uh, and Cassandra is like the like the underpinning of that because it's so easy to cluster it across data center. Um, right. That's really what enables us to do it. So we, that's what we've been doing since 2014. Is we are fully available in multiple AWS data centers. At all times, and if there's ever a problem with one of them, we fail over our traffic to the other. That's so cool. That's really hard to do too. That's that takes a. Uh, that's not one of those things where people just know how to do that out of the box. Cassandra enables it, but even there, it's it's when yeah, there's a there's a lot that goes into it, and so that's one of the big things that our platform provides is taking away the complexity of that because we right. give you stuff out of the box that is set up to do it correctly. Um, and you don't have to worry about it so much when you're writing your service. Okay, good. Okay, so already we've got some interesting dimensions here. People are using containers, they're on Kubernetes, they're talking to a database that is dollars to donuts, going to be Cassandra. What does that mean for the developer writing code these days uh, in on the JVM? Like they're using right. for example. Well, so um, going back to that history, remember I said we kind of were the result of two. Um, Companies and so we and we were kind of dual headquartered after that. We had the old CMOS office in New York, and the the main headquarters in Chicago. And we had development teams in both. And there was just kind of like a um, cultural thing um, back then. Now our our, our culture has um, gotten together a lot closer uh, lately. But in the in the beginning, it was a little bit more separate. You have a question? Yeah. Is the, is the schism, which I know must be there, uh, does it have anything to do with the? Differing definitions of pizza. Now, uh, <laughs> well, that listen, um, we are a food company, and these debates rage uh, very hot uh, at our organization. Organization, so uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So there was just kind of a tendency um, in one of the offices to use. Um, uh, Drop Wizard. Remember, this is 2014, so Drop Wizard was a very kind of popular uh, thing uh, that was supposed to be, you know, a simpler way of doing things than Spring, right? And then uh, the other office was uh, had a tendency towards Spring because most of the developers had done Spring before. Um, so when we started uh, building our our runtime platform, so this is our 
actual Java library, right? We're going to ship a Java library to all the developers that makes it easy for them to interact with our overall platform. Uh-huh. We call this we call this uh, library Roo. Uh, you know, think like when you're cooking a sauce, what do you start with? Roo. Oh. Um, so we, uh, we we built this library and we supported both. We, if you want to do Spring, that's okay. If you want to do Drop Wizard, that's okay. We are going to support both. Okay. And so, um, and originally, even like those two flavors of our framework uh, kind of were developed separately. But over time, we put it together, put it under one banner, um, and we just kind of fully support it from the service platform team perspective. Um, nice. So, so that, that that being said, nowadays um, when I say Drop Wizard, it's not even Drop Wizard anymore because we don't actually use Drop Wizard, but it's using um, Juice still and Jersey on that side. And then on the other side, we have Spring Boot. Yeah. So the Spring Boot flavor is the more popular flavor. Sure. Um, I think it has about 60% of all the services or maybe more now. Sure. Um, it is the more popular flavor. Um, and I know we're here to talk about Spring Boot. So what I can tell you in terms of the two different flavors is that when we go to implement a new feature, we still implement it in both flavors, but often the amount of code needed on the Spring side is far less. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, I mean, Spring gives us a lot more kind of out of the box um, than than we get on the other side. So that's cool. I, I <laughs> love. Uh, I mean, Drop Wizard obviously is Spring Boot wouldn't be here, but for the uh, significant uh, inspiration that uh, that Drop Wizard provided, right? And I, and that mm-hmm. you know you could we had Coda Hell metrics. This is not for you. I'm sure you know this, but for the audience who may not know, we even had Coda Hell, the engineer who created uh, Drop Wizard, and uh, he created a metrics library called, which is Yammer metrics or Coda Hale metrics or whatever. It's been called a number of different things. And uh, that was- no, Drop Wizard metrics. But yeah, well, yeah, but <laughs> supported out of the box in Spring Boot 1.0, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then we created a, a library that we think supersedes that called Micrometer. But we, you know, we used the great stuff when it's there, right? Drop Wizard metrics was awesome. So we used it in 1.0, uh, the embedded style of building services. It's, you know, it's good. And Coda Hill himself is, since admitted uh, or you know said had Spring Boot been there when he created it he wouldn't have created it right so it's a I, I think there's you know uh, that that's the highest compliment we could have been paid you know yeah I think that's I think that's great I mean when um, and we we can talk about this maybe more a little bit later but when I see uh, like what Ktor is doing in the Kotlin space for web frameworks right and then I see what Sebastian this in the Spring team is doing with some of the uh, cool experimental projects he has, like it, right. I see that the, the influence is there, right? Like people in new projects have the freedom to build stuff from scratch and have really great ideas. And then the spring team can kind of absorb that and work that. And it takes a little longer, but absorb that into the spring uh, paradigm, which I like. I love that. That's a great point. Actually, another one is Sebastian uh, worked on this and it's obviously, it's uh, and so did uh, Aryan Potsma on the uh, Spring Web stuff tier, you know, Web stuff t- side. Uh, the um, functional reactive HTTP endpoint style, right? Which once you've you know if you've used uh, Sinatra or uh, Express.js or if you've used uh, Scalatra and the Scala community or Spark Java or uh, you know, there's just a, a dozen different projects that all had a like functional predicate and then a lambda to respond, you know, that style. Once you've used it, it feels kind of like that could work too. That could be just as nice as a component model for Spring. Uh, and so, in you know, more, uh, half a decade ago, we actually added that to Spring, and it's it's one of those things where it's just yeah, that feels great. It feels really nice to have that there. And sometimes, if I just need a few endpoints, I'll just do it that way. It's 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 fine, you know. 
So good point. Yeah. Um, when you distribute, when you support Spring Boot, is there like some sort of mandate from on high uh, around which version of Spring Boot you people must use or what dependencies they must use or what version of Java they must adhere to or uh, what is that sort of look like? So, that looks a little different than it does in a lot of places because we don't do a mono repo. Um, so we don't have direct control over these things at, at the platform team level. And so Good. what it comes down to is certain things are required just because it's what's compatible with what we're doing. And then other things though are, uh, there's some discretion there. Um, and that is mostly to give people time to uh, upgrade things as they have uh, the ability to. Um, so for example, right now, we officially support Java 8 and Java 11, mm-hmm. although 90 plus percent of our stuff is on Java 11, but we have those few stragglers that are still on 8 and that's still fully supported. Um, and then we have a couple um, leading, uh, more leading edge services that are on 17 already, even though we don't officially support it, but they're kind of our early adopters. Um, and testing the water. Um, and so um, once we feel confident that everything is good there, we're going to tell everyone that we suggest that they update to Java 17. Um, and then we give a time frame under which to do it, a pretty generous time frame, And um, that way teams can plan when they're going to do that work, how much work is involved. Obviously the A211 one, that was the hardest one. Um, and then um, we have um, what some would call an IDP, internal developer, uh, Dashboard. Wait, I. <laughs> Wait, what's the? I'm blanking on the acronym, but the internal developer portal. That's it. IDP. Yes. <laughs> um, but it's it's a dashboard that shows all of the information we collect on each service. Uh, things like your Java version, your Gradle version that you're on, the version of our real framework you're on, which um, uh, maybe feature flags you have enabled or disabled. Like, for example, I'll give you an example of what that looks like. Um, we have our configuration server, and. Right. Uh, First of all, config did not exist in 2014 yet, right? So we wrote our own. Um, it's not a big oh. deal. With a hash map. It's a hash map as a service. It's, it's like really not a big deal. <laughs> so we have our own configuration server. Um, and originally, we were using um, REST to talk to it. Then we uh, introduced a JSON RPC protocol. Uh, but now we have gRPC on it. So we want everyone to move to gRPC. So we are tracking who is on gRPC and who's not, who's still on the older protocols. Um, so we track kind of all these things, and then there you can see the overall health of your service, like which migrations do you need to be working on, um, or are you falling behind? When are those things due? Um, and then we can follow up and have accountability. If, if something's falling behind, we can follow up with the management team or whatever of that group to say, what's going on with the service? Like, is, is there's not enough people to maintain it, or, you know, there's some other constraints. Like, every once in a while, we even jump in to help, like, if there's just not enough people to get the work done, we'll just jump in and be like, okay, we'll do these migrations for you just to get you over the line. So that is super valuable. So that it's, it's, you're not just, uh, you know, you're not just barking or you're, you're contributing. That's really cool. Okay. Mm, yeah. good. Um, containers that you build, uh, the, when you, when you build the containers, is there any central recipe for that or, uh, is that? Yeah, so, so in the actual build tool chain that we have, so um, so within the service platform team, we actually have a couple different verticals within there. And one of them is JVM stewardship, and that's my my personal uh, expertise. And so that goes into what is all of the Java-specific tooling uh, that we have for our service platform. And part of that is the build tooling. So um, we have about a handful of uh, custom Gradle plugins that we've authored that are kind of like 
convention plug mostly the like convention plugins in that they just kind of apply your standard plugins that you would want like uh, check style pmd um you know things like that um and then just configure them with our standard like rule set or whatever um and then there's a few plugins that do like fully custom tasks and and there's stuff there that's how we collect all this information for the portal right is that build time we Correct information, create a file, upload it to S3 somewhere, and then our system can suck that in. So um, we, we have a standard uh, way of building our services uh, with a Gradle plugin, and it's using, uh, we were using um, the Docker daemon under the hood, but uh, actually uh, we have a new version of that now where we're using JIB, the Google Project JIB, to build uh, the OCI image. Uh, and one of the cool things about that is it's allowed us to easily target multiple platforms, like. Uh, AMD 64. Nice. Cool. Very cool. Okay. So that is, uh, okay. A couple things. So you're using Gradle. Uh, is that like yes. all, for all JVM projects that's like uh, already done? Yes. Everyone's using Gradle. Um, that wasn't something we had to force people to do. It's just kind of, that's always been Gradle. We've always been a Gradle shop. We've been all Gradle since I remember when I joined, everyone was still on Gradle two point something. Right. <laughs> wow. Okay, cool. So that was so you've got built up expertise around that, uh, which is good because when you can get people on the same page, it, you know, you get inertia, and with inertia, you get when you get consistency, you get inertia, right? With with inertia, you get uh, better results faster, you know. Um, okay, mm -hmm. Jib. So you're using sixty four AMD, like you you just mentioned uh, ARM sixty four. Is that what I think I understood you you said? Yes, maybe I misspoke, but yeah, ARM sixty four. Yeah. So that that. Uh, so that uh, when we build our images, we build both the AMD 64 and the ARM 64, or, or and or the X64, whatever the regular yeah. one, and, and the and the ARM one. Uh, that helps us in a couple different places. It helps us with um, uh, local uh, development for people who do have the newer uh, M1 Macs. Right. I personally use Linux, so that doesn't affect me. But um, we do have a lot of developers with those computers, and so they can. Uh, natively run those images. Um, and then it also helps us with the uh, AWS Graviton instance type, uh, the ability to deploy to ARM64, which- um, Is amazing. Those things are fast <laughs> and cheap. They're amazing. Uh, Oracle, Oracle uh, what is it? Oracle Cloud, o OCI, or Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. They have Oracle Cloud, they have uh, uh, ARM support. You know, there's, you can tell who wants to win, but the people who are out there with <laughs> ARM 64, uh, ARM 64 support early, they knew something, you know, that was, yeah. uh, we're still evaluating it and, uh, you know, learning about it. Um, but we have the ability to deploy it. And so that allows us to, to try it out. Um, so, you know, one thing I've noticed, for example, is the JVM by default allocates double the amount of memory per thread when it's running oh. on ARM 64. And I'm not sure why, <laughs> maybe there's, there's probably a good reason for it, but I don't know what it is yet. So I'm still learning myself. <laughs> that would be a fun, I wonder what it looks like in the world of Loom uh, when that arrives, you know, soon enough as well. Yeah, you know? yeah. that probably mitigates that that issue. But we do see that like, yeah, they, they will use more memory, um, yeah. especially uh, services with a lot of threads. But, you know, because they're so much cheaper, like you can just run more of them and it's still, it's still a savings. But yeah, exactly. Still ahead. It's 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 crazy. I love ARM. I uh, I didn't know I was a fan until I got these goofy MacBook Pro M1s. Uh, you know, back in twenty twenty onward. You know, they're just uh, anyway. Whole other Oprah. We'll have another discussion some other day. Anyway, carry on. So, uh, <laughs> JVM. 
uh, some eight, mostly 11. You've got a jib-based build uh, with Gradle going to Kubernetes. I mean, already pretty standard stuff. What are people on their own at that point? Or what about when it comes to actually like handling things within the application proper, things like auditing and metrics and security and so on? Those are, let's say you're using Spring Boot. Those are things for which I think maybe an auto config might be appropriate, right? Uh, an, uh, a starter. Yes. Uh, do you have yes. to understand that? Yeah. So that's that's where uh, what I uh, mentioned before, Roo comes in. Uh, uh, Roo basically is a a library that contains. If we just remember, there's two flavors. Just keep that in the back of your head. But I'll just talk about the spring one. Um, okay. I'll talk about it in spring terms. It comes with a bunch of auto configurations um, that you get for free that will spin up um, various things. Uh, for example, um, my, uh, micrometer. We use that. We um, don't. Uh, we, we actually disable the uh, auto configuration Spring Boot provides um, because we want to up our own stuff because we want to do things a little bit custom um, and we wanted to match our, our, our and share the code between our other flavor, right? So that, that's a pattern you'll see a lot is, um, yes, this comes out of the box in Spring Boot, but we disable that because we have some shared code to make it the same across both of our flavors and we want to use that shared code. Um, so um, usually, I mean, sometimes we, it's a case-by-case -case basis. Sometimes it's just like, well, actually, the Spring Boot one's going to work just fine. Just let that run. Sometimes it's uh, it's actually working differently there than it is on our other side, so let's disable that one and, and use our shared code. It, it, it's a case-by-case. -case. Um, for example, yeah, with Micrometer, we have some custom tags that we want to apply um, for for all uh, metrics that we're uh, logging, you know? Um, so uh, we set that up. Uh, for for you just automatically with an with an auto configuration, um, and there's about 120 different modules in in, in Rue. So it, it it's um, well, highly, highly modular, but it has a lot of different functionality. For example, the way we talk to Cassandra, we're not using Spring Boot Cassandra. We're using our own thing because uh, the data stacks driver for Cassandra when we started all of this back when it was um, still in like 2.x and then later 3.x, did not do entity mapping for you. Um, so we built something for doing entity mapping. Um, so so that is like our own wrapper around it. And so we wire that up for you so that it's really easy for you to write your data access objects. Nice. Um, it's a win. That's just a couple examples. But we, like I said, we, we have like dozens of, of different features that we just, we just wired up with all of the, uh, you know, um, stuff that you need for our platform out of the box. Another quick example is gRPC. Um, we're using gRPC, but it's going through the service mesh. So where do you talk to the service mesh, right? It's a local host, some port, right? Depending on how you have it set up. Um, so we apply that configuration so that all of the, when you, uh, you can inject in a gRPC client in your Spring Boot application. And when you do, it'll automatically come where it's uh, hooked up to a managed channel that is uh, pointing at the service mesh so that the service mesh can handle the traffic for you. Uh, that's neat. Okay, so you can actually develop most of it locally and it just feels right at home. And that same local host-centric code also works in production. You don't have this weird, like, I tested it on my local machine. It's going to behave completely different over there. It's it's still just basically localhost, right? Uh, yeah, with the service mesh, yes. Um, for for the purposes of integration testing, things might be a bit different, um, you know, uh, because you don't want to necessarily use that exact port when you're running your integration test. You might want to randomize the port, so you can still configure things to point them elsewhere for integration testing purposes and things like that. But um, but there's just some kind of standard. Um, 
that we apply. Like uh, another quick example, our databases are registered in Eureka. We use Eureka for discovery, Netflix Eureka. So yeah. um, instead of configuring the driver with the actual IP addresses for your contact points or host names for the contact points, instead we have some code that goes to Eureka, looks at, uh, like, oh, I know that I'm supposed to be on Cassandra cluster one or whatever, looks that name up in Eureka, gets the contact points from there and passes that through the driver. So it's just this little bit of glue code that makes things seamless in our, yeah. um, in, our in our platform. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, okay. So are you, are you using any of the Spring Cloud components? Like you just mentioned Eureka. Uh, do you use that for service client-side loan balancing and things like that with a discovery client? So we used to use Spring Cloud Discovery, but actually with um, one of our recent big upgrade cycles, we actually dropped that dependency, but we're still using Spring Cloud Context. Um, so we're running up our own discovery client because we're customizing it. Um, okay. We have, because we're using our service mesh to register your service in Eureka, we don't want the service also trying to register with Eureka. So we actually customize the Netflix Eureka client to not write to Eureka, but to read from Eureka only. So there's some customization we did there. So uh, we wire it up, but we still use Spring Cloud Context. That, that core part of Spring Cloud that allows uh, configurations to be updated at runtime uh, right. is is very, very cool. Um, and we, we leverage that a lot. Oh, I, we should talk offline. There's also, you can disable auto-registration in Spring Cloud. Oh, is, is that feature out of the box now? Yeah. There's some <laughs> other customizations too, so. <laughs> oh, just, it's good to know. Okay, that's really cool. I mean, it's just very cool that you're like able to make uh, as much of this work for so large a, a use case, a large, large spread of services. Um, uh, let me think about this. I, I don't even, and it's kind of interesting. You're using uh, uh, you, you're using Eureka for things like the, the Cassandra database, right? That's actually really cool. Normally, I just think about it from surface to surface communication, but yeah, why wouldn't you? It makes perfect sense for infrastructure as well, right? Yeah, yeah. That was that was something we added later, um, but. Um, it, it's yeah, it's nice because it just like makes things more consistent about yeah. how we do things. Awesome, awesome. And then uh, you're you're using uh, Java for most of the code. Is there any Kotlin? Oh yeah, so um, about five years ago, being a big fan of Kotlin, like I said, I, I organized the Chicago Kotlin user group. I uh, attempted to introduce um, Kotlin on the back end, um, and it didn't go so well. Um, I think. A lot of people were a bit skeptical. Maybe they had, uh, I think a lot of them had gone through the whole groovy thing, um, the Scala thing, and, and see this promise of, um, you know, oh, yeah, you can just write any JVM language. It doesn't matter. Kind of uh, not live up, right? Right. Um, there, the, both of those other languages have uh, some significant issues uh, with, like, Java interop or just learning curve. Um, and so there's a lot of skepticism there, and, and it's still very early. Kotlin was getting popular in Android space, but on the back end, people weren't really using it yet. Um, and so there was not a lot of appetite to be like the ones trying this out at that time. Um, right. So, but we did adopt Kotlin uh, in Android um, around that time. And uh, since then, you know, that's like all of our Android stuff is Kotlin. Um, and then we also, uh, remember I mentioned those Gradle plugins, uh, those are all Kotlin now as well. Um, that was an easy sell because they were groovy. And so um, yeah. Kotlin, Kotlin was an easy sell there. Um, and so, um, but also interest in Kotlin started picking up again amongst the various product teams. Um, and at a platform team level, we said, well, it's just JVM. We don't care. 
Um, I mean, obviously, okay. I personally cared. But, but as a team, we didn't care. Like, if you want to do it, fine, you know. Um, but no team really felt empowered enough to, to do it, right, like on their own. Um, okay. What, are we going to be the one team that's doing it? What happens if we lose some people and we need other developers and no one wants to help us because it's Scotland? Or... So there's a lot of concern there. And so um, they basically asked the platform teams to get involved in it a little bit more to just kind of help them talk through what we need to think about when we want to adopt this new language on our back end, even though all of the tooling is the same, right? Um, like our build tooling is the same and our deploy tooling is the same. Um, what do we need to think about, right? Um, and so I, I helped them with that. And um, so earlier this year, we did officially give uh, full support to Kotlin on the back end. And we have, I think, four teams doing that now. Uh, we have some services in production already. Um, yeah, and, and it's been going really well so far. Um, there was some work that we did have to do, actually. You know, we want to get our static analysis in place. So um, right. ATLint and Detect, uh, those kinds of things, getting those put into our, um, our standard plugins by default uh, with some work to do. And um, there were a couple other very minor things that, uh, you know, I did to uh, smooth the path for some people, but it's been going very smoothly. So... Uh with those four teams, did they already have code in on Java before or in Java, the language that they moved over, or did they just greenfield new projects and move it, do those in Kotlin? Or what's the one of them? Uh, so two of them are doing new, starting new services. So they said, let's start it in Kotlin. Um, and then the other two are um, working on conversion. Okay. Wow. Conversion with a K? That's the <laughs> well, so I don't think anyone is really trying to convert whole services to Colin, but sure. um, they are uh, looking at um, converting, like just writing new code in Kotlin or converting just some parts. Like, for example, with the Spring Boot app, right? All you have to do is convert your like main application class, say, like your top level application class to Kotlin, right. and you unlock the ability to use the Beans functional DSL, right? Um, in Spring, and that because that's a Colin only Spring feature, and so right. you just have to convert that one class to Colin to unlock that feature in Spring, and so that's worth it. Um, <laughs> that that Beans DSL is very nice. Yeah, yeah, I quite like it. Um, for people who don't know, there's a there's a, you technically can do this from Java, but it it feels icky and it makes me sad. There's a there's a DSL that's implemented as an extension function. Uh, in uh, Spring Framework 5 and later. And so basically, when you do a run application, passing the, the, the type of the main class, parenthesis, parenthesis, curly bracket, curly bracket, and then that actually is a, uh, it's a lambda that you're passing in that's actually technically inside some parentheses, but it doesn't matter. And then in that, in those parentheses, parentheses, you can actually add an initializer because you have a pointer to the Spring application as the this context. Uh, and you can call add initializers and then instead of registering an application context initializer and all that and using the inline object creation syntax in Kotlin, there's this nice DSL. You just say beans, curly bracket, curly bracket. And inside there, you can say bean, curly bracket, curly bracket, and then re register an object as a supplier. And it's just really, really nice. It just reads like like a, what Apache HTTPD config files kind of look like, you know, sometimes, you know, it's just- Or uh, Ktor. <laughs> yeah. I like to compare it to Ktor because it looks a lot like Ktor. Oh yeah, just powerful um, stuff. And I think one of the coolest things about it is the way that your dependencies, when you inject them, can just be ref. Like the function is just ref parentheses. Like you don't have to know the type, the name, or anything. 
Um, so compared to doing like bean methods on at configuration classes, um, you don't have to like inject all the parameters in the method signature and then like pass them into the constructor. You don't have to do any of that. Um, uh -huh. Just ref for each parameter. Ref, 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 ref. It's very, very slick. Now for people who again, I it's this is a we're doing a uh, we're doing a YouTube episode for people who are listening to this on a podcast. So for their reference, who don't quite know about Kotlin. It's possible in Kotlin to have a function that gets a pointer to the type that it's being assigned to. So, uh, and it doesn't, you don't have to explicitly pass it in. So basically I can say, I have a variable of type string or like, a, or of customer service. I can say equals ref parenthesis parenthesis. And that, that ref call will know that you're trying to assign it to a customer service in the function. And you can use that to say, hey, Spring, give me a bean of type customer service that class. It's called a pseudo reified generic in Kotlin and it's just really, really powerful. But it has what and, and it has but the compiler has to know to what it should assign the results of that value. So if it knows you're passing in the if you're using ref in the call site for calling a function that, that has this parameter uh, uh, an object of type T, then it knows that ref should be a T or a foo or a bar or whatever. Um, but if you can do that and you can a lot of places, then it's just really, really nice. Just ref parenthesis parenthesis, ref parenthesis parenthesis. No more like context that get being no more like Foo space foo to inject it as a construct a, a bean method provider parameter. It's just just really elegant. Uh, but again, <laughs> one of those things where if you're not using Kotlin, you don't even know what you're missing. It's just sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, one other thing that makes me excited, so we could talk about now what it makes me excited for the future of, of yeah. uh, Spring is um, we mentioned him before, Sebastian Delius, uh, who has this Great. Spring Foo project. Um, and yeah. he started this project. I think it was like four or five years ago now, um, which is basically like taking inspiration from like the K-Tours of the world or even like the, I don't know, the Micronauts or whatever, these nice expressive configuration web frameworks. How can we bring that to spring? I think, I'm assuming, was his thought process uh, based on what, what he created. And um, what he did was he made it possible to spin up an entire Spring Boot application without having any auto configuration enabled at all. Right. Um, and everything is done using these functional DSLs um, and converting the existing auto configurations that are out there into application context initializers. Um, right. And uh, when you do that, uh, it does a couple things. One, it allows you to create kind of like a Kotlin DSL or even a Java builder. Um, it's, Kotlin DSLs are really just a fancy Java builder uh, pattern, right? right? Um, and um, to, to configure your application, uh, which makes it a lot more fluid of an API. Um, for people who the spring annotation-based stuff seems a little bit like uh, auto-magical or uh, you know hard to follow, um, it's a lot easier to follow because you can kind of like click through the code and, and follow what it's doing um, right. a little bit better. And so it gives you that, that expressiveness. Uh, and the other thing that it does is it gives you a lot of performance because there's no runtime reflection going on there. You get extremely fast startup speeds um, when you do when you do that, um, and I and yeah, I'm I'm really happy that the routing uh, DSL and the Beans DSL both made it into mainline Spring, um, right. but there's still a lot in his uh, Spring Foo project that has not made it upstream yet, uh, yeah. and I'm really hoping that it eventually does. And um, I'm I'm also trying to contribute back to that project to uh, make some improvements and make it a little bit maybe more production ready. Uh, so hopefully that we can get it one day. <laughs> so you, you, that project has been, again, I, I suppose you must have seen the blog about a week ago where they referred to Sebastian as, a, as working tirelessly 
like a quote unquote Greek hero, uh, <laughs> which totally fits because he's you know a legend. Um, I mean, he's French, but they're talking about like like classic Greek tragedy comedy heroes, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, that's, that's part two. Is your Spring Fool is awesome. You're right. It's a it's a for those watching, be aware. It's a it's experimental. There's no plans for it to go GA, you know, unless there's like a overwhelming show of support for it. So, uh, but but we use it as a research bed from which to integrate great ideas in Spring and Spring Boot and so on. And yeah, as you mentioned, a lot of things started there and they migrated into the uh, main line. Uh, and a huge part of that is the focus on uh, performance, right? So it was, uh, uh, if you look at the um, the reflection and things like that, that informed a lot of what we did in Spring Boot 3's AOT engine. So there's actually an AOT engine that'll take, for example, your at configuration classes and turn them into functional configuration. And then that's what gets fed into the compiler. You don't need to do GraalVM to take advantage of that. That's reflection-free configuration. You just do, and you just enable the AOT mode in Spring Boot 3, for example. And that, that'll, that, you know, now your Spring Boot application is basically as uh, free of reflection as your average Spring Foo app. It's gonna be a little bit slower because there's still some, but basically, you know, that's huge. And then you're, you're right, those great DSLs that are all over the place in, in Spring Foo and the Beans one, you mentioned that, the routers. I mean, it's just so many great things there. Uh, and of course, the other reason we, one of the big reasons that he was looking at Spring Foo was because there was no reflection and that made it a great way to try and get an app working on GraalVM. But of course, now there's a much more, you know, natural way to do that, right? The, the AOT engine I just described. But, uh, but again, that informed all that stuff. AOT, it informed our uh, GraalVM support and it informed the, the DSLs that you see uh, popping up. Yeah, absolutely right. The OT, uh, you know, part is important because it means you can take your Spring Boot app as is and run it on GraalVM, right? You don't have to yeah. change anything. Um, Spring Foo requires you to make some changes uh, in your application. Um, yeah. So, um, but, um, you know, I think one of, one of the big uh, exciting things going forward is if we can uh, figure out a way to make it possible to use Spring Foo or like yeah. get that stuff into Spring so that, yeah, sure. For now, we'll rely on those AOT like uh, conversions to make everything functional. But over time, we can maybe refactor, gradually convert all of our stuff into the functional style. Then eventually, you, you don't even need that part, that step, and it will just work, right? Right. <laughs> I mean, that's what I'm saying. I, I, I think that we're going to get more and more of that. Uh, the Beans DSL is a part of that, right? You're absolutely right. That, that aesthetic, some people want it. You know, it would be nice if there's more of that in Spring Boot itself. Um, you know, we're getting there slowly but surely. Uh, I, that project, wow. You know, and then and then, did you see all the cool stuff coming out of uh, KotlinConf? Because you and I just talked for like a brief minute. I was in mm -hmm. Chicago. I was lucky enough to co-present with uh, my buddy Justin Riak uh, at the Kotlin and, and Java's user group in Chicago, where you were just I don't know, which was a great ago. event, by the way. <laughs> uh, Justin's amazing. But anyway, the uh, the the event was good. But did you see the stuff the week before at KotlinConf? All that I haven't caught up on it yet, honestly. I've been so busy. I was at DevNexus, and then um, you know that was just right before, and oh. then, you know, oh, before and then yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was still catching up on stuff from being there, and then we had this event, and uh, you know, yeah. I know that uh, they said that uh, Kotlin is now the default language for Gradle. Um, right. That was one of the big ones uh, that I saw, but I haven't gone back and caught up on everything yet. The other thing that kind of blew my mind is like WebAssembly, you know? Like we're not there yet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's not like it's 
it's not like you can take a, a, a JVM application and get it to work in WebAssembly, but the pieces are slowly but surely coming together. You can do- Sebastian's uh, working on that too, right? I mean, he's done experiments. Yeah, he's done some work before. I, I, I won't speak for him, but he's got uh, a really deep bench of, of knowledge around WebAssembly <laughs> and all that stuff. And the, the technological pieces, we have garbage collection now support. There's, no, there's a new uh, way to do garbage collection in WebAssembly, right? Uh, and that was what was stopping it from being a suitable target for languages that have a runtime like Java and, and so on. So if you have that, you know, like, you know, technically it, it could be possible, you know, uh, to take JVM bytecode and get it moved over there. I'm not saying it's gonna happen tomorrow or even this year, but the it's possible now where it was just not even worth addressing before, you know? Um, mm -hmm. uh, it's just a matter of time, it seems to me. And, I can't wait. You and I should have this conversation again in like a year or two and see where we are. Like yes. the idea of running a, a Spring Boot app uh, in WebAssembly is like my dream. You know, it's just one of those. <laughs> like, because uh, you could run that in the server side, right? And the, now we're talking about, you know, kilobytes maybe or whatever, maybe hundreds of, you know, hundreds of kilobytes or whatever. Uh, I guess you call that megabytes, but not hundreds of megabytes, you know? Um, Who knows? Maybe Project Panama helps with that as well. I, I don't know. We'll have to see how that shakes out. Yeah. So much cool stuff. Um, okay, so I guess we covered a lot, but I feel like we're we could go on forever. What what is the uh, what what is the thing that you you and your organization are looking forward to uh, in the landscape? You just mentioned Spring Foo, but I mean organization wide, uh, are there like horizons? Without disclosing anything, we shouldn't know. What are some <laughs> of the horizons logically that you're sort of uh, mapping out? You know, I, well, so I think. Some of the, I mean, so my focus is on like JVM stuff specifically. So uh, I'm going to have that bias, <laughs> but uh, I'll definitely say uh, Graviton, uh, running Graviton in, on EC2 is something that a lot of people are excited about. Uh, we have a lot of excite, excitement over that. So um, yeah, I, I've, I've already kind of done all the stuff that I need to do <laughs> for that, like getting our images built for it and everything. So now I'm just kind of sitting back and watching people actually deploy it and do analysis on it and, and uh, getting to see all of that stuff. So that's cool. Um, getting up to date on, uh, so for me personally, I think the biggest thing for me is uh, getting us to Java 21 when that drops uh, so that we can leverage uh, Loom. Because uh, yeah. I think really, we have not done anything reactive, right, uh, pretty much. Um, we, we have uh, stuck with WebMVC. Uh, and so mm -hmm. I think um, the Project Loom has a potential to be a game changer for us. Um, yeah, exactly. most, Mostly what our services are doing are, is IO, right? We're like make, waiting for a database call or waiting to make a gRPC call or something to um, you know another, another service. So I think uh, the potential is there that this is gonna be a big deal for the scalability of our services. Um, so. Um, you know, some of our bigger services that, you know, run dozens and dozens of nodes, like maybe we can right. cut those down a lot, you know, so uh, I'm excited about that. Uh, I'm, an exci I'm excited about further uh, Kotlin support. Um, like I mentioned the Spring Foo, but also like I'm working on what can we do within our own framework to have a DSL-like uh, API uh, similar to Spring Foo um, and kind of unlock that nicer uh, de uh, developer experience. Uh, right. For people who maybe aren't as familiar with Spring, that maybe they're coming into our organization not familiar with Spring, so they don't know what all these magic annotations do, and maybe this this helps a little um, onboard people. So, um, 
those are the kinds of some of the bigger things that I'm I'm looking at, and also security. I'm looking a lot at uh, our security posture with our services, with dependencies, open source dependencies, um, you know, and our base images and, and things like that. And it's getting. I mean, that is. It's. It seems like that's the the next industry that's going to grow. Like, what what is what does AWS but for security look like? You know, the uh, the company that commoditizes security and makes it just. Yeah, there, everybody. there are a bunch of, a bunch of uh, companies right now angling to be that, right? Um, so I'm keeping an eye on their products, what they're, what they're doing. Um, and I, I'm just trying to keep up. We already have pretty good dependency scanning in place. Um, right. the, the, uh, we've had it for years, and so we're pretty good at that. But um, it could be better. The tooling could be better. And so we're working on that. And also um, the experience for the developer could be better because right. we have these like false positives or like, you know, CVEs and open source libraries that are not getting updated, and what do you do about that? You're stuck, you know. Right. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's something kind of like we're dealing with on a day to day basis, but then also trying to think about long term what is a better way uh, to handle some of this stuff. Right. That's awesome. Um, I had a thing I was going to ask you, and it has left. Oh, no. Sure, it was nothing. It was oh well, something before. What were we talking about before security? Hmm? Um, I was talking about the DSLs. DSLs. And I was talking about Loom. Loom, yeah. Uh, Loom seems like it was. Oh, oh, I was gonna say. Oh, it's Loom. Yes. This is why I don't remember it. I do remember it now, but I remember why I don't remember it, which is it wasn't all that important. Uh, but what I was going to say was it would be very cool if we could all normalize um, uh, getting paid the delta in our cloud bills for every ounce of efficiency that we contribute to the, <laughs> the production uh, 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 cloud footprint. Because I, because I think like with Loom and GraalVM and AOT and, uh, and all this kind of stuff, uh, we we JVM developers could be in for a huge payday if we could just get the company to be like, look, <laughs> every penny you save, you can keep. You know, just you know, come on. Yes, uh, yes. Let's make uh, come, come in on that platform. I'm there because it's it's coming. I really I really do think. I mean, the the JVM is already I think underrated in terms of um, you know running services like amongst the greater technology community. People there's still kind of a perception that Java is bloated or slow or whatever and you know, for long-lived service processes, this is not the case. It performs extremely well. But I think um, Loom, what Loom is going to do is um, make JVM also have the best-in-class uh, concurrency story, um, which I think right now it doesn't. It, right now it's it's okay. It handles it okay. Um, and the, the newer concurrency APIs that were added in, like, was that seven or eight? Um, help a little. Yeah. And we have reactive. And that's fine, but yeah. um, you know we don't have we don't have like um, Go routines or like Kotlin coroutines are also great. And anyone doing Kotlin coroutines, like, or if you're thinking about it, yes, they, they are awesome, and I, I use them a lot in my Kotlin code. But um, you know, having that built into the JVM itself and seamlessly usable from any library in Java um, right. is going to be a game changer uh, for the yeah. ecosystem. Uh, and I think that I know the people who like the people I talk to or the people I listen to that do conferences and like 
these developer relations people and everything like that um, are all very excited about it. But when I talk to people who are just people who are just getting their job done, right? Like they're just your uh, more, more traditional just developer doing their job. Most people, it's not on most people's radar, uh, and, and I think it needs to be because I think it's underestimated how much of a big deal it's going to be. Oh yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. We did. I mean, I'm sure you saw this, but just for the people watching, uh, the Spring team, we've done a, a number of blogs in the last six months talking about Loom and its intersection with, uh, you know, the stack. Uh, and there's a really great um, uh, blog that came out by Mark Thomas. Gosh, I don't know, February, uh, March, something like that, right? Wherein he talked about the potential gains for someone using Spring MVC on top of Apache Tomcat, which is for those of you who don't know, what is happening every time you just add Spring Boot Starter Web to your, to your Spring Boot app. You're running Spring MVC on top of Apache Tomcat. And basically, under Loom, uh, those applications get the same scalability as your, as your reactive stack, right? Uh, it's just a, it's just free scale. I mean, this is why it's just such a terribly bad time to be still stuck in Java 8 because you're throwing money away. Just, just. Once you go from eight to nine, it's easy, right? Nine to 21 yes. will be a, a walk in the park. It's just eight to nine. And even that, the holes uh, have been spackled over by this point. You know? And I can speak to that um, uh, personally, because uh, getting our framework to support Java 11 was right. a years long process. We had so many dependencies that were not compatible and we had to like just do a ton of work to get things up to date. It took years. Um, and the, from 11 to 17, um, on the spring side, it was literally nothing. I just, I, I just tried going to 17 and, and then it worked. Um, and then, oh. you know, on, on the other side, we did have to do like some, uh, some upgrades. We had to like upgrade our juice version a bit. Um, you know, Same there, as the very minor, very minor stuff. Um, and that's from 11 all the way to 17, you know? Um, so it's, it's getting them at home to 11. That's the hard part. Um, Huge. And well, yeah, I, I totally get that, but it, it's it's totally worth it because it's when you do it, you're not just unlocking 11, you're unlocking all the way up through Loom. You know, you're getting yeah. records, you're getting Loom uh, when that comes out. Loom and records and multi-line strings. I don't know if people know this. We have multi-line strings now and VAR, right. like auto types, you know? Oh yeah, this is, yeah. This is the- Kotlin has one. those. <laughs> Kotlin's had those, but you know, um, if, you, if you don't have Kotlin in your organization, then, uh, you know. You know. Again, Never you don't know what you're missing. <laughs> um, John, you've been phenomenal. Did we miss anything? Anything you uh, we should know uh, that you want to share before we get to the wrap up? Um, well, I I don't think so. Um, I guess I'll just give a plug for my open source project that I'm working on, KT Link Gradle, the uh, Gradle plugin for uh, for doing uh, linting for Kotlin. Um, it it uh, was first. Uh, uh, run by uh, Jonathan Lichu, who um, still is involved in the project, but he has been doing just another, talk about another Greek hero. He's been um, really uh, doing a lot for open source security in the Java space. If you if you see a CVE in the Java ecosystem, 90% of chance he reported it and also fixed it. Um, so yeah, it, uh, he's doing incredible work there. He's now with the Linux Foundation doing that. And before that, he was under the Dan Kaminsky uh, Fellowship. And uh, so he just doesn't have the time for KTLink Gradle <laughs> as much as he used to. So I've been working on that. And um, uh, there, 
is uh, it kind of lagged behind uh, the KT Lint. So for those of you don't, who don't know, KT Lint, the actual linter, is, a, is not created by JetBrains. Uh, because JetBrains wants you using IntelliJ, right, to lint your code. Okay. <laughs> um, so the actual command line linter KT lint uh, is uh, currently uh, the steward for that is Pinterest, um, and uh, the Gradle plugin itself is uh, under Jonathan. Um, uh, those are separate projects, and so um, for the time that he wasn't really working on it so much, we kind of kind of fell behind KT lint, the KT lint project itself. Um, yeah. So I've been helping get it caught up to the newer versions of KTLint, and KTLint is gearing up for its 1.0 release. And wow. so they've, they've been doing a lot of um, breaking changes lately uh, in preparation of that to get the, the API to the state they want it to be in for 1.0. Um, and okay. so the, the reason so the reason I'm plugging it is that um, you know I really could uh, use people just um, you know if you're using KTLint Gradle. Um, you can change the version of KT Lint that's pulled in uh, as a configuration value. You can you can say, "Go oh, give me KT Lint 0.47, 0.49." Um, please try that out and report the issues you find, because um, I'm trying I'm trying to get it up up to speed um, and ready. And so um, you know we could use help just for people trying it out and reporting p potential issues, just so. Uh, we know that if, if something's breaking or not working before we start, like you know, bumping up the default version and things like that. So, could use that help just bug reports. <laughs> yeah, participation is key to the open source ecosystem. Um, what about you, my friend? Are you on the internet? And do you want to, and do you want to be found? And if so, where can people find you? Sure, sure. Um, I think you put my uh, social handles on there. Um, Waking Rufus um, on Twitter, although I almost never go to Twitter these days. Um, yeah. I, I do use a Mastodon. Um, I'm at Waking Rufus at BigShoulders.City, which is a Chicago-themed instance. Um, I've been on there since 2017, so I'm actually a pretty big fan. Um, so you can catch me on there. I talk about tech and uh, other stuff on there. Um, feel free to reach out to me on there, and if you have questions about any of the stuff I'm working on or talked about today. BigShoulders.City. Uh, what is it? Waking Rufus? So yeah, you do at Waking Rufus at BigShoulders.City uh, because in Mastodon, if you take that address and paste it into the search, it'll like directly find my account. Okay, let's see. Go uh, Big Shoulders. Don't need to put it in the chat here. Yeah, chat's good. I want to make sure we we've, we've recorded it uh, so that people have posterity. I even had it in the YouTube description. If I thought I could load that up fast and we could type it, I would just do that. But computers are fast and I, uh, I don't think I have the ability to comment on your on um, from this oh, streaming right. <laughs> uh, hold on I'm gonna load my live stream during the live stream what could go wrong one second talk amongst yourselves I'll give you a topic Rhode Island is neither real nor an island Disc <laughs> okay I'm back uh I was able to open the live stream during the live stream, and um, you cross the streams. I, there's a there's a, a portal that opened up with the seven horsemen of the apocalypse, but I think we're going to be okay. There, it is. there we are. Good, everybody. This is fun. I had fun. Thank you, John. Well, thank I, you so much for having me, Josh. This is this is great.
my pleasure. Thank you for sharing all this cool stuff. And I, I you know, I can't wait to, again, we have to catch up like six months or a year. We gotta try this again. Come to, Dev, uh, come to uh, JCOF Dev in Chicago. Uh, they're going to be having it again this year in September. So keep your eye That's out uh, for that CFP. There you go. That's a great one. That's a good point too. Go to that. Absolutely. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you we got some thank you guys from Frankie's and we got a peace to everybody. Uh, you know, from, uh, so thank you everybody have a great day thank you to everyone listening for listening to me ramble A Beautiful Podcast is produced by me, Josh Long. I do these podcasts because I believe that everything we do in software is for and made better by people. I want to hear from you. I'm josh at joshlong.com by email or at S-T-A-R-B-U-X-M-A-N on Twitter, where, of course, my direct messages are wide open. Do you have guest ideas, topic suggestions, feedback? Don't hesitate to reach out. If you like the show, then please consider rating it on iTunes and leaving a review, uh, as it really helps the show. I sampled music from Steve Combs's Them from Morning and Springtime and Steve Combs's Small Victory, both of which are licensed under a Creative Commons license. I'm trying to hire production assistants to make the production of this podcast easier. I want to make sure that we can add things like show notes and transcripts and, and just generally do more. If you would like to advertise on the show, then please reach out to me. Uh, and if you can't uh, or don't want to advertise but would like to otherwise support the show, then please consider supporting me at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Josh Long for as low as $4 a month. Thanks again. No harm came to any seasons in the making of this podcast.